Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. It's gonna be a long one, you better get ready because I am going to be talking about my top drama of the year. I do not think anything will surpass my liberation notes this year. And if it does, then I'll be so amazed because I'm in love with this show in a degree that I don't think anyone has ever witnessed. Yeah, I could say this is the best ongoing drama experience I've had. So quick background on my liberation notes. Uh, same director as The Light in Your Eyes and Law School. Same writer as Another Miss O and My Mister. Uh, stars Kim Ji-won, who I've watched in Arthur Chronicles, Fight for My Way, and Love Struck in the City. And it stars also Sun Sokku. I've seen him in Designated Survivor 60 Days, Be Melodramatic, DP, Suits, Best Episode of Jirisan, the only episode of Jirisan worth watching. <laughs> and it also stars EL, who I've seen in Goblin. Um... Quick summary, it's about three siblings living together far from Seoul and they want to be freed from the repetitive lives they're currently living. I'm speedrunning the intro because, trust me, this is gonna be a long one. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speedrun this. There is no way to summarize each character briefly. So everyone gets spotlight section along with the characters connected to them and yeah, full spoilers, okay? Nothing will be spared. And then I think I'll get more general as we approach episode 13. I'm very sorry to give you homework, but I highly suggest listening to my first impressions episode so that you understand how much my opinion on these characters and this show has changed since that was the first eight episodes and now this is the full review. This is not actually the full review. This is part one. There will be a part two because I think the writing in itself needed an entire episode. Now, before we begin though, sorry, I feel like I should give some disclaimers on how to maximize this experience. Maximize the experience of watching the show. Because I think you have to be in the right headspace to truly enjoy this show. So these are my tips on how I think you can maximize the experience. But, you know, always up to you how you want to curate your watching experience. First, this is my number one pro tip. If you've watched My Mister, do not compare this to My Mister. I'm telling you, it helped me so much when I immediately let go of the expectation that this will be My Mister Part 2 or something like that. Because it's so similar but also so different, okay? This is not a sequel to My Mister. Park Young is not trying to recreate that show. I mentioned that in my first impressions episode. I think like recreating that masterpiece or recreating that magic. No, she's not. Okay, she is making a different kind of magic. And I think constantly comparing the shows and being like, mm, my mister had this or, oh, I kind of like how they did that better or I wanted this and that because that wasn't my mister. It's like, it's not helpful. It really won't be helpful because they are so different. So yes, number one pro tip, no my mister comparisons. Second pro tip, you have to immediately accept that these are flawed, immature, selfish, whiny characters. And I'm sorry, but you gotta stick with them. <laughs> the whole show is about them, okay? They will not act 
the way you want them to and the way you would. No matter how like supposedly relatable these characters are, they are their own people and they will make decisions that you may or may not agree with. I ask you to trust the process. I ask you trust the process with these characters. Uh, remain open to them as much as you can because the journeys are worth it. It will be rewarding. And, you know, if you think from the get-go, like, the problems are not real. They're so shallow. They should just shut up and be grateful for what they have, blah, blah, blah. Like, if that's your mindset to, you know, what they're talking about and what they're dealing with, eh, okay. Eh, wala na. <laughs> Tapos, uh, how do I say this in English? It's game over, I guess. I mean... I'm telling you, you're not in the right headspace for this. So I think you should just drop it, okay? If you think, like, these problems are so shallow, like, why is this even a drama? Why is this even a problem? You know, you're looking for something that will not be here. This show will not give you that. This show is what it is. So I highly suggest drop it, park it, whatever. Just don't hate watch this show. I don't think it'll. it's a fun hate watch. Third pro tip. These characters will talk a lot, and they will also not talk at all. So if you are looking for something you can keep in the background and you can just figure out the plot by whenever whenever you hear them talking, yeah, this is not it. This is not it, okay? The value of the show is in what they say and how it reflects in their lives or in the lives of others. And this show will reward you for paying attention to what they say. I promise you. That was my realization towards the end. It's like, oh my god that this situation is a reflection of this line from episode 4 and it's now episode 15. and Just those realizations come with paying attention to what they say, which may be difficult sometimes, but I promise you, it will be rewarding. Also, the visual storytelling of this show is so good. It's so excellent. There's so many details about the characters that I wouldn't have gotten if I weren't paying attention to every single shot while they're being silent. Okay, we're so used to K-dramas where you can just really read the subs and you'll figure it out. This isn't it, okay? This brings back why directors are so important. So, yes, this is not a background show. Fourth pro tip, this is my personal opinion on the trajectory of the show. Personally, the first six episodes might be tough to get through. And you may say, girly, six episodes, that's a huge chunk of the show. And to that, I say, girly, it's better than having a you know, great first six episodes and then you know continually just gets worse and worse and worse and then by episode 12 they're just dragging you to the finale and then, then in episode 16 it's like thank god it's over at the very least it ended up okay but you know the the whole journey wasn't that great so yeah i'll take a slow start that ends well and like continues to get better and ends well because it picks up so much by episode 7 to 12 and then episode 13 to 14 cinematic masterpiece two of the greatest episodes of television i'm telling you and then you may think, oh, it's kind of dropping again in episodes 15 and 16. And you think, oh, it ended badly. No, my dear. I promise you, it ended so well. That's all I can say for now. We'll get to that later. What else? Pro, what other pro tips can I give? For comparison, I guess, like a cross-genre, cross-medium comparison, this feels like an anime film to me. You know, Ghibli, um, five centimeters per second, little Kimi no Nawa every now and then. Recently, I watched I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Reminds me of that. It's just, you know, those very slow, very slow and quiet shows. And yet the emotional punch is there when it has to be there. 
that's the reason why I think I fell in love with the show almost immediately. Because anime films, that's kind of my jam. I kind of was obsessed with that for a while. So I'm just lucky that this show is to my tastes exactly. The experience is very subjective. So you may see a lot of you know different opinions online. Some people really loved it. Some people didn't get it. They didn't like it. Um, it is what it is. It is what you make of it. You get as much as you give with this kind of show. And I think the more you engage with the material, <laughs> I sound like a prof. Um, the more you engage with the material, I think the more you'll get out of it. If you're not feeling the show, I highly suggest dropping it. But if you are, okay, welcome to the experience of a lifetime. <laughs> Okay, finally, finally, done with the preamble. Let's go to the plot and characters. I'm once again going by birth order because I think it's easier for me to discuss it that way. First, we have Yeom Gi-jong, played by EL. So she is the eldest sister, currently approaching her 40s. She's looking for love and marriage, and she has very high standards, but so little experience with men because she keeps turning them down. She calls herself a pickup girl. So this very <laughs> graphic description of like, if your lover were beheaded, what would you do? Would you run away? Would you stand there and faint? Or would you pick up that head? Okay. <laughs> Honestly, okay, if you ask me, I think I would just stand there and faint. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'm sorry. I'm not a pickup girl. I, I take that back if I said I were. I'm not a pickup girl. She's ride or die. That's what she's saying, okay? She's a ride or die loyal girl. She describes herself as a dog, okay? She's, she's ride or die. <laughs> and you know, out of desperation, right? As a last hurrah, she promises to love anyone this winter or she'll just give up on love and on herself. So I think the first step to Ki Jong's whole journey was confronting her boss, Jinu, who had gone out with nearly every girl in their office and at least, you know, tried to hit on them by giving them these lotto tickets. But never Ki Jong. He's never approached Ki Jong. So why? Why not me? What's wrong with me? All these girls and not me. And so after that, they have this really nice conversation about, you know, what are you really looking for in a partner? What kind of romance are you looking for? It was really very pleasant. And throughout the show, like, he becomes her dating guru and the only person who really listens to all her rants about being lonely and wanting love and about her love life with the next person I'll introduce. And I love Jinu because he is the only person who seems to like listening to Gijong. All her friends seem to be so sick of her rants, but you know, Jinu, Jinu's there. Jinu's our friend. She, so Gijong meets Cho Tehun. This guy is Mijong's co worker. He is the younger brother of her high school classmate, and he's also a divorced single father who she met when she was ranting to her friends about wanting to off herself instead of dating a single father, which she said in front of his daughter. <laughs> and it's obviously a terrible start, like cringe to the max. But she eventually starts falling for him. She talked to Jinu about you know, what she was looking for in a man. And yeah, she's looking for someone with the right attitude towards life. And I think she really appreciates how he takes care of his daughter and his family still. And that he's a 
tall glass of water. Okay? <laughs> so, Gijong, you know, tries to befriend him a little bit. She tries to resist it at first, but she really can't. She knows she's falling. And then she confesses to him and pushes through this ridiculous plan to, like, get into a motorcycle accident if she gets rejected so that she feels more physical pain than emotional pain. Like, she tells her brother and their uh, neighborhood friend, like, just run me over. <laughs> run me over in the sidewalk. Just push me, you know? And then I'll pretend I have amnesia or something. It's so stupid and she's also, you know, almost 40 and you think, my God, she's so immature. I mean, it's almost as if that's the point. It's almost as if that's the point, guys. <laughs> that's episode 8. You gotta watch episode 8. It's comedy gold. Um, But, you know, eventually, Taehoon sees her sincerity and realizes that he likes how he feels around her. And then they start dating. Now, let's describe Taehoon a little bit so you have an image of what she's dealing with. He as a person feels weak. He's always felt weak since his parents died when he was young. And now he thinks that Yurim, his daughter, will grow up like him, feeling weak because he and her mother are now divorced. But, you know, with Kichong, he feels like he can relax. Like, he doesn't need to be fun or energetic or strong around her. And that's because Kichong is a pickup girl, right? She's ready to be strong enough for the both of us and that she can deal with anything. So Tehun lives with his daughter who's in middle school and his two older sisters who have worn off dating and marriage so that they can take care of Yurim and not make her feel like she lacks anything. So they grew up in a similar situation that their parents died and they were raised by their aunt except their aunt was terrible to them. This whole setup is actually a parallel to a conversation that Gijong had with one of her friends. Uh, they said something like the family that we grew up in will be just like the family we'll have in the future. And so these siblings, the, the two sisters, they think they're breaking the cycle, right? That no, we're, we're gonna be great aunts, we're gonna take care of Yurim, we're gonna love her so much, she'll never feel lonely, she'll never feel weak. But honestly, they're toxic in a different way because of how possessive they are over Yurim and Tehun's personal life, you know, essentially telling him not to date, to not disrupt the balance that they have as a family. Gyeongson, the middle sister who's Gijong's high school classmate, she finds out about what Gijong said that night that Yurim overheard, and she makes Gijong's life hell. Like, tries to stop them from getting into a relationship, and then constantly antagonizes Gijong when they start dating. And then Yurim, the daughter, is a teenager, you know, she's going through puberty, and I mean, to give her a little leeway and allow her to be a child. It's a difficult situation for a kid to navigate. And it doesn't help that one of her aunts is encouraging hostile behavior. So in this situation, Gijong gets what she wanted, right? She wants this man. She wants this relationship. But he has so much baggage. And this is this surely is not the relationship she imagined for herself. So what is Gijong trying to liberate herself from? I think she needs to be liberated from society's expectations of how she should be as a woman in her 40s, right? And her expectation that she should be in the perfect relationship with a perfect person. I think that's a lot of her journey will deal with that. Side note before we move on to the next character, I'm sad that Jinu vanished when Gijong finally started dating Taehoon because she had a good relationship with him. But that's something interesting about the show, actually. That the stories are entirely focused on the main four characters. So if you are not relevant to them anymore, you don't appear. Right? This is not a show that's trying to tell everyone's stories. I mean, maybe they will a little, but if you're not important to their journey now, you're gone. You're out. That's something interesting to note about how this show treats characters. And I love it. I love the focus of it. You may think the show has no focus, but it is very focused in that way. But
Okay, next main character is Yom Chang-hee. Chang-hee! <laughs> you know, this is why you have to listen to my first impressions episode because you will hear the difference of how I talk about Chang-hee now to how I used to talk about him in the first half of the show because now we love Chang-hee. Chang-hee is our favorite character, okay? So, he is the middle child, the only son... He has a strange relationship with his dad in particular because, well, many reasons. But specifically, he bought a car years ago that they kind of had to bail him out on. Like, it was a bust. And since then, they don't trust him with finances. And his dad, like, thinks his life is going nowhere because he's right now working as a manager of several convenience stores. So he, you know, spends hours of his day going to different branches, talking to owners, like, doing menial work for them. And then there's even this one owner who takes at least an hour out of his day just to talk to him on the phone to rant about her life, her shop, her ex-husband. Chang-hee. Oh, Chang-hee. <laughs> he wants so many things, right? He wants a car. He wants a promotion. He wants to live in Seoul. He wants a better, more fun life. But he has no money for a car. He has no money to live in Seoul. He's been passed over for a promotion. He doesn't get accepted into a better department at work. He doesn't have the money to buy this uh, a branch of this convenience store he manages that he knows will make him a lot more money. And of course, his father won't support him. But despite you know all of that, everything that Chang he lacks, he is a good, compassionate guy. Like, he helps out at home or at the farm. Unlike Gijong, who completely avoids farm work. You will never see Gijong doing farm work. Um, and, you know, to Gijong, he's there for her. Even for her stupid motorcycle amnesia idea. Uh, Changhee has a solid set of friends in Sanpo. They say, like, oh, you know, your neighborhood friends. You, don't, you didn't really choose them. They're like family. <laughs> They're just there. They're the only ones that are there. So you're forced to be around them. But, you know, genuinely, these guys... Hang out. They like hanging out. They're actually friends. Uh, what else about Chang Hee? He's yeah, very dedicated to the branches that he manages, even if it takes so much of his time, even if he doesn't have to do have to restock their shelves or clean out their freezers or whatever. He just puts in that work to help those people. In the office, his co-workers like him. They like working with him. But Chang-hee's self-esteem stops him from having stable romantic relationships, I guess. We meet him, actually, when he's breaking up with his girlfriend. And Chang-hee self-sabotages. He is a self-sabotager, okay? Instead of being broken up with, because he thinks like, oh, she's going to realize I'm beneath her. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be enough because I'm this and that. Instead of getting broken up with, he does it first, right? It's like, I will not be left behind. I will leave, right? I will be not exactly nasty or something, but I'll find some excuse to break up with this girl just so that she doesn't stay long enough to realize how inadequate I am or doesn't make me feel that way because I already feel that way by myself. And then someone in the office is kind of interested in him, kind of flirting with him. But he refuses to pursue that because he knows that his issues with himself and his situation will come up anyway. So what's what's the point of doing this? She's going to want more in the future and I will not be able to give more. So I won't even try. I was frustrated with Changi's character for so long because all he did was complain and do nothing about it, right? His scenes were either monologues about his low self-esteem, uh, his observations about the people around him, or his hatred for Arum, this uh, co-worker who sits beside him, who's actually very similar to him, okay? They're both managers, they're both being passed over for promotions, they both talk a lot, you know, something Changi realizes in the middle of his rants, it's like, huh, I talk a lot, don't I? Yeah, you do, Chang. <laughs> so why do you hate her so much if she's exactly like you? 
I also did not get that for a long time, and I was not paying attention to his character at the time. I was really annoyed by him. And the only thing he gained from that whole arc was realizing that he hated her because she had money. Her dad bought the branch that he wanted, right? That he was managing and he knew would make money for him. But his father refuses to ever support him with anything. So, yeah, maybe there was more to this arc than that because I wasn't paying attention to him at the time. But this this arc was one reason why it took me forever to like Changhee. The Aram arc ends suddenly when he just stops being so aggravated by her. So why? Why are you suddenly okay? Because actually, Chang-hee stumbles upon the keys to a Rolls Royce in Gu's bathroom. At this point, Chang-hee is obsessed with Gu because Gu is the only like interesting thing, interesting person happening in Sanpo. So he asks for the car. What the heck? And Gu gives him the car. What the heck? I hated this arc also because, you know, Chang-hee didn't earn that car. He was just being annoying and he asked for it and he got it. This was one of his major desires for so long and he just got it out of nowhere. But there is a realization. There was an explanation for this later. So yeah, Chang-hee got what he wanted. But he was honest that he didn't own it. He wasn't claiming that, oh yeah, I got a Rolls Royce out of nowhere. Now he says, oh, my friend owns it. I'm just driving it because he's gone. In a way, he got what he wanted and from an outsider's perspective, he looked like, wow, this guy's doing well for himself. He's successful. But really, the car was not the answer. He got some peace and quiet out of it, but it brought its own set of problems. He still does not feel filled. <laughs> like Mijong. What Mijong said in an early conversation, I'll get it later, but just because her debt will be paid, that doesn't mean she'll be filled. So just because he got the car doesn't mean he'll be satisfied with his life doesn't mean he'll be happy because not having a car wasn't his problem in the first place i have to describe this specific scene that i loved so much in episode 12 i think episode 12 so changi finds out that the car got damaged and he shows gu right and gu usually is very very quiet doesn't react to anything he could have gotten mad at changi before but he never did and then you just see Changi before this putting on, like thinking about what shoes to wear. And then he decides, I'm going to put on running shoes before I leave the house and show this to Gu. And then he made the perfect decision because Gu chases him all the way to the train station. And it's such a funny chase scene. Like you hear Changi shrieking every now and then. Um, and it's so out of character for Gu to respond so aggressively to something. And then suddenly, suddenly the music changes to Laggard by Shin Yumi. It turns into something symbolic, right? That Chang-hee is now not running away from Gu. Now he's running towards something. So, back to the main story. <laughs> um, to introduce a side character that's important, they have this neighborhood friend, Hyona, whose family moved to Seoul long ago, but she still visits Sanpo every now and then, or they meet up in Seoul. She's closest to Mijong, but she's very close to Chang-hee also. Now, Yona doesn't think much of herself, and she settles for whoever, even if those relationships are toxic and abusive. Which is a great contrast to Ki-jong, who thinks very highly of herself and has high standards, but no relationships. And so Mijong has these conflicting on me figures, sis, older sister figures that give her different advice on how to live her life and date. Um, anyway, back to Chang Hee. Now, Hyuna tends to look for broken people and tries to fix them. You know how some of those girls are. They exist in the world. And now she's with one of her exes who's dying. And she's taking care of him in the hospital. And Chang Hee runs to them. Runs to him because of apparently how often Hyuna would talk about Chang Hee to him. And Chang Hee decides to quit his job 
and take care of this ex with the free time he has now. Like, what a strange decision. But the more you get to know Changhee, the more it makes perfect sense. So I think Changhee needed to liberate himself from ambition. He needed to liberate himself from society's expectations of how he should live his life and what he should want in it. Because for the longest time, Changhee was aimless, but he was stuck in this dead-end corporate job. And after quitting, yeah, he was still aimless, but now he's free to explore whatever purpose he's meant to find in life. That, that is what Changhee is looking for. So our next main character is Hyung Mi Jong, played by Kim Ji Won. She's the youngest daughter. She was born after their family experienced financial difficulties. So she's always seen her family as very silent and distant to each other. And then she took after her father in that way. She's very introverted, very observant, never feels like she belongs, always feels left behind. She can blend in with her co-workers, but she never feels like she's genuinely understood and accepted. So she works as a temp worker in a graphic design job. And her boss is really terrible to her, constantly humiliates her in front of the others. She's also paying off this huge debt that she got because she took out a loan for her ex whose business failed. And then that ex left her to go back to his ex and he refuses to pay it all back. And then there's the issue of these after-work clubs that she's constantly being told to join. And she doesn't want to join them because one... She doesn't want to. <laughs> Two, she lives far away. And three, she doesn't want to, okay? She doesn't. So, instead of forcing herself to fit in and try, she forms a new club with the other two who don't have clubs either. That includes Taehoon, by the way. Taehoon Gijong's boyfriend. That is the Liberation Club. So, they reflect on what they need liberation from and how they're able to achieve that. It's group therapy. It's really group therapy without a therapist. <laughs> they talk about what they wrote in their notes and no one is expected to comfort them or to give advice. There are three rules to this club. One, don't pretend to be happy. Two, don't pretend to be unhappy. And three, be honest with yourself. It's wonderful. It's truly the most charming part of the show. It's underutilized. I'm telling you, don't want too much of it because there will not be much of it. But, you know, Minjong talks about, or she writes about, trying to find someone that she truly likes. Someone who she won't give up on even if they, you know, blow hot or cold. Or She's going to be purposeful about how she treats this person. That she'll truly accept them and like them without expecting anything or getting disappointed by them. I'm jumping around the sequence of events, but this show really kicks off after the iconic Worship Me conversation. Where she tells Mr. Gu to worship her. And I saw some people say this was so random. And I thought it was at first. Like, where did she get the idea to approach him in the first two episodes? This was the end of episode two. And I'm telling you, you have to rewatch the show like a crazy person like me. Because if you rewatch it, in the middle of all the silence while working on the farm and eating dinner together, there are times when he looks at her or reacts slightly when she leaves. <laughs> or, or, okay, this one incident in episode one. Her mom tells her to tell Gu that her father will start work at 7 but he can come in at 9. And mom specifically said, emphasize that father will work early so that he'll figure it out. You know, he'll get the vibe and come in early. But Mi Jong, when she goes to him, just tells him, come in at 9. Nothing else. Next morning, she's going to work. The clock shows 7 a.m. Specifically, the camera very pointedly focuses on 7 a.m. Mi Jong looking at it and then going to work. 
And when she goes out, he passes by her, kind of looks at her as she's coming in, and then goes straight to the factory. And you may say, girly, you're reaching. You and the other people who agreed with you on the internet are reaching. We're not. Okay, we're not. There was this extended shot of her looking back at the factory. Like, she's also asking, how did he know? How did he know that he should come in early? And why? And then later in that episode, or in second episode, Nangi Chung was talking about, let's go love anyone this winter. Minchong like just laughs at it, but then when Gu passes by while they're having that conversation, her look lingers as if she's thinking about it. She's already observing something. And when she was like stepping over their boundaries of not speaking unless absolutely necessary, because she asked him to hide the notice from the bank saying that she had this debt. I think she was testing the waters on how much he was willing to interact with her, and she got what she wanted. And then by the end of episode 2, she asked him to worship her instead of slowly killing himself by drinking. Tells him, worship me, make me feel whole, I'm tired of dating, douchebag after douchebag. And of course, Mr. Gu does not say yes because what the hell is wrong with this girl? She knows nothing about him and he could be just another asshole, another douchebag. And also, who is she to demand that he makes her feel whole, right? When has she ever done that for someone else? And her response, this crazy girl's response is, I'll worship you too, if you want it. You look like you haven't been filled either. What, girl? What does worship even mean? Let's all get our heads out of the gutter and understand what, how does she define worship? It's an odd word, even for Koreans. They apparently do not use this word. It's very, very intentional, very purposeful. How does she define worship? She says, you cheer them on, you tell them they can do anything and that everything is possible. To me, worship is another way of saying unconditional love. Now, let me rant about this because this realization rocked my world. We don't say it, but we kind of expect unconditional love to come naturally, right? From our parents, our children, our siblings, friends, even our lovers. Like, we expect to be accepted and loved completely without judgment no matter what we do or say it's what we want it's how we see what true love is but that rarely ever happens right and if we're being completely honest when have we ever loved someone that truly and completely right we don't give it to others as well and it's normal to have those expectations those unsaid expectations and it's normal to be disappointed by others when you know they don't treat you the way you want them to but we continue with these relationships and it just it gets exhausting when you think i just want to experience true love i just want to experience this for real and we keep craving it but it's just never going to happen so mijong does something insane by asking for it i want unconditional love give it to me we don't owe this to each other we don't know anything about each other we're not tied to each other by blood or whatever reason but i want unconditional love so give it to me we think it should come naturally, right? Out of the goodness of our heart, the purity of our love, our relationship. But what happens if we ask for unconditional love and consciously give it? How can that transform our lives and our relationships? It's not the quote-unquote natural way of things, but they repeat this several times in the show, right? If you say it, it becomes real. And you change once you do something for the first time. So they change by worshipping each other, by giving each other that unconditional love. And unlike Yona, 
who I mentioned is kind of an older sister figure to Mijong. She's not a fixer. Mijong is not a fixer. She's not trying to fix Ku. She simply accepts him as he is and he does the same for her. And both of them are healed just by having that kind of safe relationship with someone. That someone is their safety net. So her liberation, I think, will come from freeing herself from the toxic relationships that leave her disappointed and full of spite and anger. And unlike Changhee and Gijong, she kind of is already starting that journey early on in the show, right? By choosing to accept and to support someone no matter what side of themselves they choose to show her. In the process, she finds peace with someone. She finds a relationship that doesn't disappoint her, that doesn't hurt her. And she finds something to love about herself because someone is able to accept and love her as she is. Now, the message of this whole worship relationship thing is do not do as Park Hyung says. Okay, she's saying, don't do as I do, nor as I say. This is crazy. This is insane. Don't approach some stranger you live near to and just say, worship me. Especially an alcoholic that you know nothing about, okay? Mijo was just lucky that Gu was actually an okay person. That Gu totally understood her, right? This could have been disastrous if she chose someone who wouldn't respond to her demand as well as he did. And someone that would manipulate, you know, that kind of love and acceptance that she's giving him. It's partially very unrealistic and dangerous, but also partially aspirational. There is something so beautiful about it. I'll get to that in Goose part. And anyway, another criticism-ish I saw about Mijong was that they didn't get Mijong because of Kim Jiwon's acting. Like, Mijong would be so blank and then suddenly she'd light up when Goo's there and then there's no basis for the depth of those emotions. Like, where did that even come from? And to that, I say, yeah, maybe there is no depth. Maybe she's just happy that she's getting what she wants. And yes, I'm saying Mijong is selfish. I'm saying she is the taker in this relationship and Gu is the giver. But that's exactly what they signed up. She does not love love him, right? She is getting exactly what she asked for. And honestly, Gu is getting more out of this relationship by giving because he ends up genuinely liking her, liking how differently she thinks, liking how similar they are and how they see each other so clearly. More on this in Goose part, but just being seen and understood by her, that she calls him transparent. She thinks she knows pretty much everything she needs to know about him. That's such a huge comfort to him. So yeah, Mijong is selfish, but even in her selfishness, she is able to contribute to the worship relationship. It's wonderful. More on this later. Now, our last main character, the star of the show. <laughs> uh, we have Mr. Gu, played by Son Sokku. So he is a mysterious stranger who moved into the house beside theirs and drank the whole time during winter. And then the young parents, they approached him and asked for his help in the factory, in the farm. That was their way of like saving him because he was really going to drink himself to death. Uh, Gu does not talk to anyone. He just works and eats with them. That's it. Every night, he buys two bottles of soju. He drinks. He walks back to the convenience store, buys two more, and then drinks until he passes out. And then much, much later, like there's a lot of mystery and, you know, silence with him. But we find out eventually that he used to be a host in this host club. And he rose up the ranks to be their you know, debt collector for this chairman Shin who has an empire of <laughs> clubs. 
And he lived with this girl who was severely depressed and he tried to get her to go to therapy. But the metaphor he used was too graphic and she ended up ending herself. You gotta watch episode 9. That one scene in episode 9, I think, is enough for a big song nomination for Son Sokku. It's so good. I rewatched just to watch him act. Okay, that's how good Son Sokku is. Anyway, this girl was also the sister of uh, Beck, President Beck, I guess, who essentially ousted him from his position in Chairman Shin's whole club empire. And that's how Gu ended up running away from Seoul. And he was supposed to be killed by Beck in uh, the next train station. But he got off on the wrong stop. He got off on the Indangmi station in the stop for Sanpo. And that's because he heard Mijong yelling at a drunk Changhi to get off the train. And I don't know why his consciousness told him to, you know, leave as well. But essentially, Mijong saved his life, okay? And coincidentally, he moved to the house next to theirs. And he didn't live there or help them out just to see her or whatever. It's, it's not like that. But, you know, the interest was there. That's why I'm saying in episodes 1 and 2, there was something, something there. Because... The flashbacks came in like end of episode 9 or 10. Give context to that. Like, oh man, that realization. You had to go back to the first few episodes just to see like, was he really interested in her? Was there something already there? Fascinating. (laughs) Anyway... Usually, I would hate a fated connection, but this time I love it because it's not actually about them. It's about Chang-hee, who is always in the right place at the right time. More on that in in the future episode analyses, but it's a Chang-hee thing. It's not about them. <laughs> so anyway, going back to present, uh, through his relationship with Mi-jong, we see him slowly getting his life together. And he's drinking, a, I mean, I'd say a lot less, right? He's not drinking enough to hurt himself because he used to hurt himself. And it's not because Mi-jong asks him to change, but because he decides to do it. Her worship of him, for me, follows the concept of unconditional positive regard. Let's, let's have a lecture today. So I copied this off the internet. <laughs> but unconditional positive regard is the attitude of complete acceptance and love, whether for yourself or for someone else. When you have unconditional positive regard for someone, nothing they can do could give you a reason to stop seeing them as inherently human and inherently lovable. It doesn't mean that you accept every action taken by the person, but you accept who they are at a level much deeper than surface behaviors. According to Carl Rogers, uh, problematic behaviors like drinking too much aren't altered with confrontation, judgment, or punishment. They are remedied with compassion, understanding, and acceptance. So unconditional positive regard restores hope by showing us that we are loved and accepted. And from Roger's lens, when people feel safe, honesty follows. And being honest with ourselves and others is crucial for change. And paraphrased quote, I copied this off the internet, okay? I do not need to cite my sources. I'm sorry. But God, what a lovely concept. I remember when I first heard that in class, I teared up. Because like, what would it feel like to receive unconditional positive regard, man? Anyway, I love it because it's a contrast to what he did with his ex, right? He was well-meaning. He was well-meaning when he told her, like, get help, get therapy. But it was pushing her when she... I don't know, wasn't in the space for it. Wasn't in the right headspace to listen to it. And it made things worse. I think after hearing that story from him, Mi Jong knew that she couldn't do the same to him. That she also could not push him if he didn't want to. So she'll just continue worshipping him by accepting him. And though it may seem like, as I mentioned earlier, that he's doing more in their worship relationship, her acceptance of him is enough. Her saying that she understands him, that he is transparent to her, is enough. 
he's also never felt understood like her. He's also had to put up such a hard exterior to make it through his days because he hated his job and hated his life so much. But Mi Chung said she saw right through him and the acceptance of what she saw really made him want to get his life together bit by bit. But of course, his old people found him in Sanpo and they you know, kept hanging around his house and the Yom family and he knew he had to leave to protect them. Yes, it's noble idiocy. I know, but it was so good. The breakup scene in episode 12 is a writing and acting masterclass. I'm telling you, every line was a reference to something they've talked about before. Something that Gu, you know, wholeheartedly accepted about her. And now he was using it to hurt her in a way to tell her to change and to be quote-unquote normal. And it's not just to make the breakup easier for her and for him, right? Like, it's gonna be easier for him. Like, if I leave her and she hates me, it's easier. It's easier than, like, I leave her and she still likes me and still wants me to be there. But also, not just that, also he knows that they were each other's safe space and he worries about her, right? But also, another layer to this conversation was that they had... A convo from the last episode where Mijong was saying that when she gets mad about something, she thinks about it for 10 days or more, something like that. So in a way, he kind of wants her to get mad so that she still thinks of him. But but her response to that is she's not mad. She's just sad. And she won't cling on to him. She won't tell him to stay. That's what she promised him, right? And that's what she promised herself before they got attached to each other and to what they had together. You know, it could have been like a screaming, fighting, kissing in the rain kind of breakup. But there was just so much subtlety and pain in their acting. And I just, I kept re-watching the scene, no matter how much it hurt, just to watch them act. It's it's insane. It's really insane. Episode 12, writing masterclass. By the end of episode 12, he went back to his miserable life in Seoul. And his liberation now is hopefully liberation from the job and the life that kept him miserable. Because the alcoholism is just a symptom of that. And it's also liberation from the idea that he doesn't deserve to be happy. That he deserves to suffer and to punish himself. Side note, side note, aside from his relationship with Mijong, I really loved his relationship with Changhee and with Papa Yom. <laughs> Papa Yom, father. So with the father, they were both so silent but understood each other well enough. And I think that's also why he got along with Mijong as well because she is similar to her father. I love that he asked for Mijong's phone number from her dad, <laughs> right? So that, you know, this relationship is not a secret to the person he spends all day with. Totally respectable, very, very legal. Legal yung relation nila. Um, and I love that when he found out they were dating, when father found out they were dating, because that's what Mijong said they were doing, because worship will make no sense to anyone else. Father told him that, you know, the sink factory is enough to keep my family afloat, to keep my land, to pay off my sister's debt, right? And then he was teaching Gu how to run the business. Father was preparing to have a son-in-law. He was so ready, you know? And so it hurt so much when Gu left, because it felt like he was also breaking up with father <laughs> oh and you know Papa Yom made it super clear that he was always welcome to come back and he still paid Gu his wage for the work he did even if he found out eventually that Gu was super rich because that's how much pride Papa Yom had in the work that he did Gu's relationship with Changhee uh, Changhee just annoyed his way into Gu's heart yet this is where you saw how well-meaning Changhee was as a person even if he crosses the line at times even if he invades Gu's privacy at times it's very cute. <laughs> and at first, I thought it was annoying. But, you know, when you start 
falling for Changhi. You just everything Changhi does, like oh Changhi. Yeah, I I loved Gu's relationship with the others in the Yom family, not just Nijong. So I told you that everyone had enough going on to get their own spotlight. But now we converge for episodes 13 and 14. Two of the greatest episodes of television I've ever watched. We jump straight into Gangster Goo's life and see how different he is in his job. His drinking has gotten so much worse. He gets loud and violent when he collects money. And it's such a contrast to Goo in Sanpo who was quiet and he never actually got mad even though he knew he could. Right, And he just, the yearning, the yearning over Mijong, it hurts so bad. And it was also longing not just for her, but for Sanpo, for everything that that life represented for him. For the happiness and the peace that he finally felt like he could experience in there. And I love, this is a directing thing, I think, but I love how you can't tell how much time has passed in his scenes because that's how repetitive and miserable his days were. Plus, of course, the constant drinking. I'm sure he can't even tell what day it is at this point. Then we go back to the Yom family a month after Gu left. And we find out yeah, Chang he quit his job. It annoyed me, really, that this was shown in a flashback. But, I mean, it's not like it was out of nowhere. He, he always wanted to leave. It's just unfortunate that it happened during the time skip. <laughs> this was when I fell for Chang as a character, right? He finally did something about his life and realized that striving upwards was not for him. And then we move on to Gichong. Gichong and Tehun are really dating now. Mama Yom even goes out to meet him while they're on a date because she's just so excited that Gichong seems so happy in that relationship. And then right after that, Mama Yom finds out that Mijong was walking around town crying over Gu when he left. Of course, Mijong never shows that. Never showed that to people. She acted like everything was alright. Mijong very early on, episode 5, told Gu that, you know, everything was okay as long as their mom didn't know. Because her mom always thought that she was unhappy because she was always worrying about her kids. You know, mom never did anything for herself. She was a housewife 24-7. At one day, she I think she went to church, saw her child. You know, she was happy for Gichong. She was worried for Changhee. And she was sad about Mijong. And then she took a rest. She made, was making rice for them and she just took a nap. And Changhee found her and she never woke up. It was such an emotional gut punch because of the directing. Gu and Mijong had this beautiful, like, parallel sequence of the two of them riding the train to Sanpo, where Mijong was hoping that, you know, when I turn this corner, when I see the station, he's going to be out there waiting for me. And he was, except he was two, three years too late, and he found out that mom died, dad remarried, and the siblings all moved to Seoul when he arrived to the house that was... It wasn't super lively and happy before, but now it was just completely empty, devoid of anything that messed me up that night i barely got any sleep because they made it seem like the family had fallen apart after mom's death that you know we've always known that they were never close as a family and suddenly apparently it was so easy for them to split apart because the only thing that kept them together was the idea that their family should be together 
But without their mom, without the light of the home, without their glue, like, what's the point of staying together? That was what episode 13 made me feel. That they really just fell apart as a family. And if episode 13 was a directing masterclass, episode 14 was a writing and acting masterclass. It, ugh, their depiction of grief was so painful and so perfect. Because it's not all in the wailing and crying during the funeral. It's in the pain of going back to a normal life in a home that carries all those memories of a person who is gone. But, but here is the light at the end of the tunnel. Instead of the family falling apart like I feared they would in episode 13, this episode showed how their mom's death forced them to all come together. There was a line early early in the show when Gi Jong once said that she hated seeing a family of four because they looked like fortresses, something like that. And then in episode 14, that's what they became as a family. And it's amazing that a throwaway convo that I really ignored in my first watch, it's amazing that that perfectly mirrored their situation, what, 12? 11 episodes later. Chang-hee became the glue of their family, right? He was unemployed, so he was always like cooking for his dad, helping him in the factory, staying with him. So in a way, you know, Chang-hee kept the house going, right? They didn't fall into despair because, because Chang-hee was there to make sure everything was still moving. I felt most sorry for Mi-jong in this episode because Ki-jong had Taehoon, right? She had someone to help her cope with it. Chang-hee had his Sanpo friends, had a great conversation with Sanpo friends. And then there was Mi-jong who didn't have Gu anymore. And then, you know, something super messy happened in the office. Her family found out about her death. They finally talked about how little support they received from their parents, right? They finally communicated that to each other and explicitly said to each other that you know, they have each other's backs, that they love each other in their own way. Because we're so used to K-drama families that are super loving and sweet. So, you know, seeing a family like them, you know, they, they don't express it like many families do, but they still love each other in their own way. And that is just so real and so beautiful. You have to watch episode 14. Episode 13 and 14. You just have to watch it. It's, once again, two of the most beautiful episodes of television I've ever watched. And then at the end of episode 14, after making me cry almost as much as I did in Dear My Friends for one episode. Then at the end of episode 14, they reunite and they heal my soul. They healed my soul, right? The awkward but like excited energy between them, the anticipation was insane. And behind the scenes info, but they actually scheduled their filming so that Son Sokku and Kim Ji Won didn't film together for two weeks. Just to make that anticipation even more real and palpable. Oh, genius. You know, this episode, these two episodes, I think served as a great transition from the past and present. From the 2019 timeline to the 2022 timeline. Because after so many episodes of watching them struggle and be stuck, they finally decided to stop letting themselves stagnate. Because they were letting themselves live like this. And you may say, why? Why did they have to wait for their mom to die before they all decided to move to Seoul and change their lives? Because home is comfortable. Because you think nothing will change. And you can always be safe here. Even if you don't like it. Even if you're not entirely happy. Because you can always blame it on something else, right? Instead of yourself. But when home stopped feeling like home, they realized that they couldn't let themselves grow old here. Like Chang-hee explicitly said that. that. He felt like he was going to grow old with his dad every meal that they had together if he didn't help him get remarried and taken care of so they can move. 
you know, if we all knew exactly what to do and when to do it to change our lives and make it better, then we'd all be happy. No one would be stuck. But this show asks, what does happiness look like? What does liberation even look like? I cross my heart looking up at the moon So now we move on to the finale episodes. We jump straight into their lives in Seoul. And they finally did the one thing that they thought would change all their lives. But that does not mean their problems were solved. Gijong is going strong with Taehoon. But his family is still as toxic as they were two years ago. He says they'll get married in 10 years. But she'll be 50 by then, okay? And she doesn't want that. Taehoon does not put her above his family. He also won't break up with her, right? And she doesn't want that either. But Taehoon is... He's in a difficult position, okay? And for Gijong, this is not the relationship that she wanted for herself. Changhee now owns a convenience store. He's working for himself. He has the time to explore his interests and his fascination with soul. Even if he has all that, you can see how quiet he is, how lonely he is. They revealed in flashbacks that Hyona's ex died, and he and Hyona, they got together in the time skip but broke up eventually. He doesn't work in that company anymore, so he doesn't have his co-workers, and he left his sample friends behind when he moved to Seoul. So, you know, he has the things he wanted, right? He has a car now. He doesn't use it. He has the convenience store. He's free to do whatever he wants. He is earning good money. He's living in Seoul, but he's not happy. Why? Because he has no people and no purpose. So what? what's the point of having all of this? Nitpick, little nitpick, I did not like how so much of his story towards the end was in flashbacks. Like, resigning was in a flashback, breaking up with Yona was in a flashback, the ex dying was in a flashback. My justification, or my rationalization of all of this, is that coincidentally, this happened during the two-year time skip. So, it was interesting to see how he had gotten everything he wanted, but he was still, he was the most unhappy now. For me, he was the most unhappy. Because Mijong is doing the best. Mijong is living her best life among them, right? She left her job. She doesn't do graphic design anymore. And I think that's really a good decision for her because the standards in graphic design are so ambiguous. It really depends on who's judging you, who's who's viewing it. And so I think Mijong really would not have thrived in that because she's always questioning everything, right? She's questioning life, questioning living and purpose and everything. And, you know, I think it wasn't a good fit for her, even though she had the talent. Anyway, aside from that, she kept that one friend from her workplace, the other temp worker, and she yeah, she genuinely has a friend that she meets up with freely of both of their choice. Her whole energy has changed. A lot of her melancholy is gone. She seems to have really applied everything she promised to do to liberate herself. And now it is Goose's turn to receive support and acceptance from her. Because his alcoholism has gotten so bad that even even Chairman Shin is telling him to get help. And I think reconnecting with Mijong is kind of his way of doing that. He asks her weirdly like to have have, you know 10 therapy sessions with him because that's usually how many sessions you get at once and then you know if he still wants to say more let's renew that have another 10 sessions and then if there's nothing more to be said let's end it which others were like oh red flag why would you make a girl your therapist guys i ask you to read between the lines okay it's a reversal of her asking him to worship her. It, it's just a more concrete uh, example, concrete wording, but I mean, it's essentially a reverse of the worship relationship. Because that was a selfish request from her, right? Make me feel whole. Love is not enough. Worship me. Listen to me. Cheer me on. 
don't question my decisions. Right, that was a selfish request from her and all she did was receive from him. So this time, he's asking her to just listen and to stay, even if what he shares becomes too dark and too personal. Because the last time he did share something super dark and personal about, you know, what happened to his girlfriend, question mark, she kind of ran away. They kind of fought about that. So yeah, like he's asking her to stay. That's just just it. Just asking her to stay and to listen until he somehow feels okay. The same way that she asked him to worship her until she felt filled. And then she would end it without clinging on to him. It's a transaction. It goes two ways. Honestly, I think we all liked Sanpogu more than Gu Jagyong. More than Soul Gu, right? The mystery around Sanpogu was fun. And honestly, even if we got so much like Gu Mijong fluff, I still like them more in Sanpo than in Seoul. They said it explicitly. They were better suited for the fields. <laughs> and a lot of the show in episodes 15 and 16 was like that. Life hits us unexpectedly. There's no going back to how things were. And so when the last two episodes felt empty, I realized it's because there was some magic in Sanpo, right? There was something good about living outside of the city and having a physical and geographical separation in the two aspects of their life. And so it was a hassle, yeah. It, it isolated them from people, kept them from socializing freely. Okay, yeah. But they traded that hassle for monotony. Now, every day is soul. Every hour of the day is just soul. But then also, there was no going back to Sanpo because that time in their life has passed. It's been two years. Their home is not the same anymore. And you know, there's just no going back to the past. That's what the last two episodes, the dreariness of it, that's what it felt like for me. Now the ending. You know, things seem bleak. I was very scared, but the show stuck the landing. To me, it remained true to its message, even if we didn't get the climactic happy endings for everyone. Liberation is a process. Happiness is not the end goal. Even if we get bits and pieces of it at a time, that is enough to keep us going. Now, one by one, Gichong's ending was the least satisfying to me, but I still understood what it was trying to say. She decided to stay with Tehun, even if he had so much baggage, even if that meant putting up with his sister and his daughter, even if it meant that she wasn't going to get the fairy tale romance that she wanted. And some said that, oh, you know, she didn't experience any growth, but I disagree. Because we always imagine growth as going from like point A to point B, and point B is so much better. But sometimes it's about staying where you are, growing from your naivety, and remaining firm in who you think you are, right? Gijong is a pickup girl. She calls herself a pickup girl. At first, it was from a place of inexperience, and she couldn't distinguish if she loved Tehun or pitied him or was just so desperate to be in a relationship. But now, now she knows it's difficult. It's not what she imagined, and it will continue to be that way in the future. But she is staying because she loves Tehun, and breaking up with him would hurt her too much. Like Others wanted her to break up with him and realize that, oh, she didn't need the love of others or whatever. But that would make no sense with her overall story. 
not once did it ever seem like Ki Jong did not want to be in a relationship and that she would be better off without one. The show even explicitly told her that, you know, love will not be happy and romantic all the time. And, you know, from her father, her father explicitly said, there's no pressure to get married and to settle down. It's okay to be alone. So now she is liberated from her expectations, right? This is what love should be. And she's liberated from the expectations of others that she should be married at this age, that she should have a family. So now that she's free from those, staying with Taehoon and being a pickup girl is truly her choice. It is entirely her choice. And I really respect that whole arc. Side note, I love her possible relationship with her stepmom. Like, I like how it's another reflection of the, uh, you know, the earlier statement that the family you grew up in will be just like the family you'll have. Because it used to be just for Taehoon and his sisters and now, you know, his sisters and his daughter. But it could also be for Gijong and her stepmom and now Gijong being Yurim's stepmom. So very interesting parallels. I don't know. That was such a throwaway line and throwaway conversation. It felt so random in episode four or five. But now, like, I see it so clearly as part of Gi Jong's art. It's really beautiful. Now, Chang Hee. Chang Hee's ending was my favorite. He always had this knack for being there when people died. And in general, just being in the right place at the right time. And the show was playing with fate as a trope by making him aware of it, right? It's like, I usually get annoyed when main characters are there conveniently for some reason, but the show pokes fun at it. And it, it's even funnier that Chang Hee, being Chang Hee, who is so self-aware, who talks through all of his feelings, he becomes aware of his own like psychic energy. It's so funny. And it's Amazing that he ended up accidentally walking into a lecture about becoming a funeral director and realizing that maybe this is his purpose. It's so ridiculous, but it's so Chang-hee. You know, he gets to be kind to others. He gets to support others through a very difficult time. And he just gets to be there for people in a way that he wants to be, in a way that he's always been, even when he was a convenience store manager. So yeah, just a perfect ending for Chang-hee. Great, great ending. Min-jong, um, I thought Min-jong would stagnate to the end because her role was now to be Goose support. But they gave me one last emotional tidbit that really hit me a little too hard, dare I say. <laughs> So Mijong realized that she was exhausted by relationships because she just kept holding on to her spite and her anger towards the people who wronged her. And she holds on to that because she doesn't want to acknowledge that maybe something is wrong about her. Right, that maybe her insecurities are real and that's why these people treated her terribly. No, she'd rather just make them the bad people who hurt her and she doesn't deserve that and they're terrible people. And Gu was always special to her because she made sure that she would never hate him or blame him for leaving her, essentially, right? And because of that, she could preserve the memories that they had together and she could preserve the worship that he did to her, that love that she felt from his worship. When she eventually let go of her hatred for Chanyok, the ex who got her into a, a debt specifically, um, she was able to really feel how lovable she was as a person. Like letting go of the hatred in her heart made space for all the love that she was receiving from the people around her and from herself, allowed her to love herself. I love how Mijong is an unreliable narrator, the way we are all unreliable narrators in our lives. 
her hatred and her spite for others clouded her view on herself. Even if she was trying so hard not to blame herself for the situation, in a way, hating that person still constantly reminds you of what happened and will unconsciously, subconsciously remind you or make you feel like it's still your fault. No matter how hard you try to not think about it that way, right? It's like, don't think of a pink elephant. Well, damn, it's there. Uh, Mi Jong looked back on her old diaries as a kid. Because she always thought that as a, even as a kid, I was like this. I was this introspective and melancholic. But then when she looked back on it, it's like she was a normal kid with normal interests and feelings. She felt so much love. She felt so much passion. And her spite, her anger, had colored her view on her whole life and herself and everyone around her. I, I remember early on, early episode, uh, when the Liberation Club started, the other member was talking about how people and situations will always make you mad. So you just have to change. But he doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to let go of his anger because he it's reasonable. It's it, it's right for me. I'm okay, It's okay for me to be angry. Yeah, yeah, it's reasonable. Your anger is justified. But it hurts more to hold on to it than to let it go. And just to see the reverse of that conversation in episode 4 all the way in episode 16, that her realization was somehow related to a conversation from episode 4, it's just great. It's so amazing to watch that. And it feels so rewarding to have paid attention to that one bit of dialogue way back then. Speaking of the Liberation Club, I love that they started again because liberation is a process, not an end goal. And even if Mijong at the moment, you know, it seems like all her issues are solved, like what's there to liberate yourself from? Surely something will come up again. Surely something still needs to change. So yeah, it's just a continuous process trying to make each day a little bit better. Nitpick. I loved the overall message of her story, but a part of me did not know where it came from. Right? Okay. Common K-drama problem is that we see the huge turning point and the resolution of a problem, but the foundation and the build-up to the turning point was not enough. In this case, I feel like the foundation is there, like so much foundation, and the conclusion is great, but the turning point to me wasn't clear. Once again, it may have gotten lost in the time skip, though you could always say that she's always been aware of how relationships exhausted her. She put in the work, she's been putting in the work since, you know, the whole worship relationship. And the final verbalization of her issues, just putting it into words, it just took time. And then, of course, tying back to the theme of the Liberation Club, um, they talked about how, you know, figuring out the problem first might be one step of liberation already. So even if they can't do anything about it yet, just knowing what's wrong is a form of liberation. So there definitely was enough justification for it. Maybe the turning point wasn't like a huge incident necessarily, except for her forgiving her ex. Um, but getting to that point, I guess there was enough build-up. Okay, fine. Sorry for the nitpick, but someone might share the opinion. Now, last character's ending. Gu. Gu just made me feel anxious. I thought he was either going to die or break up with Mijong. And yet, they'll say like, oh, that's part of their liberation. Essentially, he has a lot of anger and guilt over the people in his life or the people who were in his life. But instead of just being sad about it, he uses alcohol to cope. So hearing Mijong talk about her own ways of dealing with things, you know, collecting the few seconds of happiness, and of peace that she feels like letting go of her anger laughing in the face of her demons her advice helps him find small ways to make it through without drinking and the symbolism behind this entire final sequence is incredible people on reddit will do a much better job of explaining it than me i'm very sorry but it's really gorgeous. Others criticized the ending for not showing him overcoming his alcoholism 
you know, directly. Like saying, you know, you're a coward. <laughs> you didn't know how to fix it. So you just said, he's starting the journey. That's good enough. But you know what? I think if he had actually fully overcome his alcoholism, that would have had a worse message. And people would claim, oh, it's a love fixes all story, right? If he got better immediately, it would be very unrealistic and harmful, right? The message would be harmful. You're saying like, all you have to do is meet the right person and you'll be fixed. Yeah, I, I think this was enough of a change. There were enough signs that he was going to change or at least try to change. I also disagree with those saying that Gumi Jung's relationship isn't healthy. It's surprisingly incredibly healthy. Okay, I don't know why people want people to suffer alone. And why do you why do you always want people to suffer alone? I agree he should get therapy. Yes, therapy can help. Do not call me anti-therapy, okay? <laughs> I want to be a therapist in the future. I'm gonna study to be a therapist in the future. I'm not anti-therapy. But you know, my perspective is that your life circumstances and your support networks greatly help on the road to recovery. Like therapy alone cannot solve your problems because yeah, you'll be equipped with mental skills to try and overcome what you're going through. But I mean, if the situation hasn't changed and you're still alone and you're dealing with it on your own and you also don't really want to go to therapy, you can't force someone to do it. You cannot force someone. They have to want it. And if you force someone, they're going to be resistant to it and it's not going to work. So, you know, I think it's important. It's important for him to have this relationship. And sometimes I think you guys, you know, you're saying, oh, she should get away from him because he, you know, is an alcoholic and this and that. Like, you realize you're kind of saying that people suffering from alcoholism don't deserve love and support until they get better. You realize kind of that that's what you're saying. Especially in the case of someone who really feels feels isolated, someone who has had to develop a tough exterior to survive, you would deprive him of a relationship with someone who sees through him and still accepts him. And someone who he also understands and accepts as well. Like It's a two-way thing. She's also positively influenced by their relationship. Totally different situation if he were like abusive, right? If he were hurting her, if he were emotionally manipulating her into staying with him, saying like, I'm gonna die if you leave me. I'm, you know, I can't make it through without you, right? If he were saying things like that, then yeah, girly, run for your life. But you know, he's not. He's really only harming himself. And surprisingly, Mitchell is strong. She is a strong girl, okay? She she can support him and accept him fully while still having the strength to deal with her own issues, right? So, yeah, Curly has the mental strength, the fortitude to deal with her issues while still being there for him. So I don't think it's harming her to be there for him. Nitpick though, or something that genuinely pissed me off... Minjong, don't buy him alcohol. I understand accepting him. I understand being there for him. But don't be an enabler, sis. Come on. Ugh. That really bothered me. That that I could not accept about the character. Anyway, going back to the ending, I'm so sorry. I disagree with people who say this is an open ending. It seemed pretty clear to me, right? So what happened was Hyunjin Gusyong in the club industry had a gambling debt and he ran away with Chairman Jin's money from the club that he manages. So Gu calls him, explicitly says, like, I forgive you and you're free to come back. Uh, I want to see you alive. <laughs> and then he takes a lot of his own money and leaves his apartment. And I thought it was pretty clear that he was going to go and pay back Hyunjin's debt to Chairman Shin, right? Because I feel like forgiving someone, is a, that's part of forgiving him. And also, that's something that Papa Yom did, something that Mijong did. And I think he's very similar to them. And that would be a part of his arc. Maybe he's even taking the money to leave the club business. Who knows? 
you know, things happen. We cut to Mi Jong with a voiceover saying that in her liberation notes, she says that she categorizes her life as before meeting Mr. Gu and after meeting Mr. Gu. And then he responds to her voiceover saying, me too. Which kind of implies that they're having a conversation or whatever, their minds are linked. Uh, and then she talks about feeling so lovable, so full of love. And we see her smiling brightly at someone who's walking towards her. And camera framing-wise, it kind of looks like Gu from another street is walking in her direction. And then the final, final shot is her looking down at the camera, bathed in sunlight, and it feels like Gu is looking up at her, right? Like she is the light of his life, the goddess that he worships. It feels like that, and then it ends. So his ending is liberation from the idea that he can't be happy, right? And even if it comes in snippets, in small bursts, it's still worth something. And he can still pull himself out of this. So the ending may not have been a wedding or them settling down in Sanpo with their kids. Yes, I wanted Gumijong pregnancy. Okay, I, I wanted the happiest ending for them. But, you know, it seemed pretty clear that they're going to somehow stay together and still have a relationship with each other. The four of them having you know, separate shots and separate endings shows us that liberation is an individual process. But the people in our lives and the love that we give and receive can help us somehow reach liberation. I love this show, even if it is a walking contradiction. It's both pretentious and also incredibly authentic, right? It's both grounded in reality and yet so metaphorical. And the thing is, it's not trying to be all those things. It is all those things. It's not confused about what it is or what it's trying to be. It does not lack identity. This show knows itself. And this is exactly what the writer and the director wanted the show to be, right? It was written before they started filming. It was pre-produced before it started airing. Like This is exactly what they want it to be. And I just have so much respect for how they made this vision come true. This could have been one of the shows that I criticized, saying it's better as a novel than it is as a drama. Many shows are like that to me. But, you know, the directing and the acting are so superb that it is worth watching. It's just so good. The writing is actually the most polarizing aspect of the show. Some love it, others hate it. Many love how relatable it is. That's one of the buzzwords that makes me roll my eyes at this point. <laughs> when others don't think that it's compelling enough for TV. This is most evident in the conversations or in the monologue. Right, Because the first few episodes had so many monologues and it didn't feel like they were even listening to each other. It didn't feel like there was any point to this. They were just talking, talking, talking. Barely to each other. Just at each other. And the writing for me only started picking up when I started seeing how their conversations mirrored their lives or the lives of others. And that took a lot of time and a lot of patience and attention. I had to pay so much attention. And then, you know, recently... I've been talking to my sister, to my friends, and I realized that I talk so much. And my friends, my, the people around me talk so much too. We have conversations that last for hours. 
And the thing is, we talk exactly like the people in my liberation notes. One person monologues, the others kind of are listening, not really. And then another person monologues and we try to just connect to each other's thoughts and, and bounce off each other in that way. And I was really bothered by how, you know, sometimes people don't listen to each other in the show and then they just monologue one after the other. And then I realized, wait, that's also how my conversations go. Because while you're kind of listening to the other person, you're also in your head rehearsing what you want to say, the points you want to bring up, the things you want to refer back to. And that's why we monologue one after the other. I used to think the dialogue was so unnatural here, but actually, this is real. This is real life. This is how people speak in real life. That apparently those really super tight, you know, well-paced conversations, yeah, they are television conversations. They are screenplays. This felt like life. Which, you know, some people is that they will roll their eyes and say like, whatever, that this is still television, you know? It's not compelling for television. But to me, I'm just amazed that a work of art like this exists and is on television and we're watching it and it's somehow within the conventions of television but also outside of it. It's insane. It's really the conversations. After having that epiphany, I kind of want to rewatch and just listen to them speak again and try to gain even more meaning from it because now I'm starting to appreciate what Parkeyong was trying to do. Uh, another aspect of the writing that I loved, it felt like a true ensemble cast. Because you may think, oh, Kumi Jung, they're the main couple, quote unquote. They have a huge spotlight. They're the main attractors of the show. But I didn't feel like Chang Hee and Ki Jung were supporting characters to their story. In the middle, Ki Jung got to shine. She got a lot of great moments. That's when I started falling for her. And then at the end, Chang Hee shined so much. That's when I fell for him. Everyone had their time to shine and then their stories just continued on, continued on. So yeah, even if Gumi Jong is, you'd say, the main couple, some people are here because they really love Chang Yi. Some people are here because they love Ki Jong. Whether or not you enjoyed one person's story as much as the others, they are all equally important to the whole flow of the show. Anyway, in general, you know, your mileage may vary with the show. If you don't like how the dialogue flows or how it's really... It's just a bunch of characters going through their lives. You know, this is, once again, this is slice of life. This is the genre. And then the directing and the acting, they just follow what the writing asks of them. So even if those aspects are undoubtedly perfect for me, really, the directing and acting are so good. If the writing doesn't click for you, you may not see that. But for those like me who loved it, this is a show that creeps up on you until you are so immersed in it. And it is a show that gets better with a rewatch because there are so many things that you may have missed not in a you know what's happening in the plot way but in a oh this was what this character was talking about or oh it reflects in their lives in that way once again with this show you get what you give this is infinitely more fun when you truly watch it focus on it and try to understand these characters right it, no matter how uncomfortable it may seem to listen to them talk about things that you never thought you'd hear people talk about on TV. It just is a wonderful watch. And to me, I absolutely loved it. So yeah, that's it for me today. 
just today because next time I will have another My Liberation Notes episode and I will talk more about the directing and the acting and I'll make comparisons to other K-dramas because you know it had to come, you know it had to happen. I resisted all this time but we're gonna make some comparisons soon. I knew this episode was going to be long but damn, I did not think it would be this long. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you soon. For tuning in, feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!